Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Rope, where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in today's podcast, we're speaking with Kathy Wood, the Chief Investment Officer and founder of ARK Invest. ARK Invest is an investment management group based in New York that specializes in investing in disruptive technologies. Today, we're diving into two of the areas that they invest in being 3D printing and genomics. That 3D printing is part of their robotics and automation strategy, which is one of the five areas that they invest in in disruptive technologies. I caught up with Kathy recently when I was in New York City. I think you'll enjoy this podcast. Please remember to give me feedback and send that through. We really enjoy receiving that. So without any further ado, over to Kathy. Well, Kathy, welcome back to Inside the Road. Thank you, David. Happy to be here. Well, I'm really excited. I'm standing here, um, and you know, for the podcast, it doesn't play out so well, but we're standing here on the top of Rockefeller Place in the um, Rainbow Room, which is super exciting to be right on top of Central Park in the whole of Manhattan, which is great. And I feel kind of, you know, the, this building is so iconic and built by such a disruptive individual who changed the economic landscape. And hearing you talk about the technologies um, that you talk about is a similar sort of change we're seeing. So um, it, it's really exciting to, to have you along. And I know it's a big day for you today because you, you mentioned that Elon Musk liked one of your tweets. Yes, he did. That was uh, That's what I woke up to this morning. And it, it was thrilling. And the tweet was this. I congratulated him and uh, basically said to him, more ma- or to the world, more managements should uh, tell analysts when they keep asking the same question to stop it and ask for more ask more interesting questions. Uh, he did that, got a lot of criticism, but what happened is the line of questioning after he turned off two analysts' questions, again, same old, same old, the line of questioning improved dramatically. He talked about autonomous vehicles, he talked about autonomous truck platoons, uh, you know, we never hear anything like that because the questions are always about gross margin, capital spending, and he gave all that information in his letter. While we have him, let him speak. Yes. Okay, so look, to recap for our listeners, and, and you're, you're the first Inside the Rope podcast uh, interviewee that we've had back, so thank you for that. That's terrific. Um, thank you. To, you're, to recap for our listeners, you're area of expertise in your research and your investment uh, arm and, and ARC, your investment management firm, is all about investing in disruptive technology. Can you just set the scene at a high level for our listeners, please? Sure. Uh, we uh, focus only on disruptive innovation because we think that innovation is key to growth. And when we say growth, we're not talking about financially engineered growth. We're talking about true growth, starting at the top line. Uh, Today there are five innovation platforms, or uh, in Silicon Valley they'd call them general purpose technology platforms that are evolving at the same time. Uh, And we've never had that many evolving at the same time. You have to go back to the late 1800s to see three. So back then, telephone, electricity, internal combustion engine. Today, the five are uh, genomic sequencing, uh, robotics and automation, that includes 3D printing, uh, energy storage, so the transportation is going electric. Yes. Uh, next generation internet, so artificial intelligence, deep learning, reinforcement learning, and then blockchain technology. 
Uh, we think blockchain technology today is where the World Wide Web was in the early 90s. And it might even be a little earlier than that. And the opportunity is going to be much bigger than even the internet has been. Okay. Well, that's a very broad and you know, exciting area. And, and I think for a lot of you know, clients, that's somewhat overwhelming. <laughs> so let, let's maybe dive into one of those a little bit and maybe talk about 3D printing. One of the things I've heard you said that really stood out to me was the fact, and I think you're right, and Australians can relate to it, in that 85%, correct me or I'm wrong here, 85% of hearing aids are manufactured using 3D printing. And of course, Australians understand from an investment perspective, cochlear and how much of a success that has been. Yeah. Can you t talk a little bit about 3D printing and the themes and where you see that going and how investors can make money out of that theme? Sure. Uh, so actually 95% of, yes, of all hearing aids. And any company in the hearing aid business that did not switch over to 3D printing lost its business within 500 days. Wow. That's how quickly it took over. Uh, so when it goes, it goes quickly. And we think that's going to happen to manufacturing, especially at the high end uh, uh, and low volume end. So aerospace is a perfect, a perfect uh, opportunity for 3D printing. And that's where we're seeing right now uh, a lot of the activity in 3D printing. So um, Airbus, Boeing, both are 3D printing performance oriented parts. Uh, what, why are they doing this? For a number of reasons. It cuts their costs up to 90% per part. It cuts uh, the size, can be half, uh, half the size of the original or smaller. Uh, and it cuts the weight. All of those are by up to 50, 75%. All of those are extremely important to the aerospace uh, market. Uh, so Boeing, for example, has gross margins of 19%. Think about okay. it. Their cost of goods, 80%. They're going to be able to cut back on their cost of goods by maybe up to, let's just say even 20%. That's huge in a 19% uh, gross margin company. So we think economic imperative and competitive dynamics are going to start pushing 3D printing up very rapidly. Right now it accounts for about 33 to 40% of the prototyping market. So uh, it's in the industrial space already. It's got its mm -hmm. nose under the tent. Now we're going more towards end-use parts in aerospace, automotive, and uh, medical devices. So, uh, so we uh, believe that the market was about $7 billion last year. Uh, we think by 2022, that's only four years, is going to be a $65 billion market. Wow. And McKinsey thinks that it could be as high as $500 billion in 10 years. Uh, the way it will get there is it, uh, it, 3D printing will become uh, an integral part of the industrial production process. And we're seeing uh, big companies like GE and Siemens moving in this direction very, very quickly. Wow, that's, and that's a long way from what most of us and will see in terms of thinking of 3D printing some little dinky plastic printer. So you're talking about these things are printing metal, um, yes. you know, hardcore manufacturing items. Absolutely. Metal and plastics, uh, carbon fiber. You know, uh, I think the reason the, the, 
the industries or, or this particular subset of the industry is, uh, has been so disadvantaged in the stock market is because of exactly what you just said. In 2012 and 13, uh, the thought was that every consumer would buy a 3D printer, uh, just like a PC, just put it on the desk yeah. to print stuff at home. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, what are they going to print? Uh, jewelry? How many of us want to do that? Yeah. You know, it didn't make any sense. But these companies, you know, they fell for it and they bought out MakerBot, Stratasys bought MakerBot, and has written most of it off. Now that they have gotten through all of that from a restructuring point of view, we're beginning to see and hear much more about the high-end industrial, and they have the biggest market share in there, roughly 35% of the high-end industrial uh, space, and uh, the automotive space and the medical space. So are they, the way to invest and harness this is in those automotive companies, or are they specialist companies with the printing technology that you can gain access to in public markets and invest into? Yes, so there are uh, companies in the 3D uh, printing space. Uh, as I mentioned, Stratasys has the largest share in the high-end industrial space, which is where we think the action is going to be, that and medical. Uh, 3D Systems went through a growth uh, by acquisition spree uh, and is in the middle of trying to restructure and consolidate and really uh, get its balance back, so it's, it's having some difficulty doing that. Uh, Materialize is a, a software play in the 3D printing space, so it will service all of these companies. Then you have companies, the big conglomerates, and you know, 3D printing is going to be buried in those. Mm -hmm. They'll, it a will GE never of, move. GE, GE bought two, two 3D metal uh, companies, okay. uh, 3D printing metal companies, about two years ago. Uh, and uh, you know, we found that interesting. Uh, we, it made us think, oh, is this going to go the way of nanotech? Nanotech was a, you know, a very um, hyped up space in the, I'm going to say the late 90s, 2000s. And what happened to nanotech was it was absorbed by the big industrial conglomerates and there are no pure plays out there. So that we began to think when, when GE made that, uh, ac those acquisitions, we thought, uh-oh, could 3D printing go the same way? Uh, we don't think it will. We don't think it will. We think it will be a big standalone business. Now, one of your other big themes, Kathy, is in uh, genomics yes. and the research being done and the technology and the progress and how that will disrupt um, a lot of what we see in medicine at the moment. Mm -hmm. Now this is really exciting to me because you know it's not only economic gain but a huge you know personal gain for people mm -hmm. or you know in terms of health and well-being uh, pretty profound yes. not just the economic gain but of course in the investment space you're looking for the economic gain. Can you talk a little bit about that space for us? Sure. So the space has um, come alive because of DNA sequencing. So uh, the cost to sequence a whole human genome today is a little below $1,000. By uh, 2021, we think it'll be $100. Uh, that's US dollars. And we think that it will start to become uh, a routine part of everyone's physical. Because while we're born with DNA, and most people think it does not change at all in our lifetime, that can't possibly be true. Just ask someone with melanoma. The environment impacts our DNA and causes disease. What is disease? 
disease is a mutation in our genome. Uh, so we have three billion base pairs of DNA in our genome. Uh, a mutation, so a mistake, a programming error in any one of those, it could cause disease and uh, very often does cause disease if our immune system is not strong enough to overcome it. Uh, so we, uh, we're seeing today, thanks to two new technologies, CRISPR and CAR-T, uh, we're now seeing ways to correct those mutations, actually correct the programming errors, and cure disease. Uh, one of the earliest trials is in pediatric blindness. Think about it. Mm -hmm. This is one of the first human trials. Uh, we will know, I think, within a year whether this works. Uh, what we've seen in mouse models and uh, non-human primate models is it does work. Now it's going into human trials this year in the United States. It's already in uh, trials in China, human trials starting in 2015, we believe, and I'm sure we don't know all of that has gone wrong in the experimentation there, but we are hearing about miraculous cures, uh, thanks to CRISPR and CAR-T. Uh, so CRISPR actually uh, corrects the mutations in the genome, and CAR-T unleashes, unleashes an individual's own immune system against disease. Uh, or strengthens the immune system against disease. So we are seeing miraculous stories in the cancer space uh, of cures. So non-aggressive non-Hodgkin's uh, lymphoma. Uh, early tests showed 50% cure rate, and this was for patients on their deathbeds. They had already failed three or four uh, other lines of therapy. There was nothing left. This was. In the U.S., we'd call it a Hail Mary pass, sure. right? we get that. Oh, you, 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 we, you Wow. You I think we understand the, the, the term. Yes, Is so Hail Mary pass. Yep, yes, NFL the term. last, you know, it's do or die, literally. And uh, we're seeing cure rates that we never dreamed of. Uh, so it's bringing real hope into the cancer space and into many other uh, disease spaces. So, Kathy, I think for a lot of our listeners, it was really exciting and, you know, the type of stuff, but they feel that well, this is a, a long way out, and you know, it's it's from an investment perspective, you know, high risk, high probability. Can you talk about how you're investing into that theme and how some of that has played out, mm -hmm. just sort of bring it to life? If you could, sure. Please? First, I'll set this up by um, saying that, especially in the U.S., it's true to some degree around the world. Uh, politics has caused. Uh, has caused the healthcare space problems during the past few years. Uh, drug pricing is under attack around the world. In the United States, uh, the new FDA commi uh, commissioner, uh, head of the FDA, Scott Gottlieb, has two priorities. One, to get drug pricing down. And so how is he doing that? He's accelerating the approval rate of generics, including biosimilars in the biotech space. So even biotech which had been somewhat immune to the generic uh, wave, mm -hmm. is now under assault. So that's the first. But the other priority that he has is to accelerate the approval of breakthrough therapies. This is huge for us in the world of disruptive innovation. It has increased the odds of success dramatically. So um, we're seeing CAR-T and CRISPR uh, uh, gaining much broader acceptance, much faster in research institutions, 
and in pharma and biotech companies uh, because it's an antidote to some of the problems they're going to have in the other part of their space and it's opening up entirely new vistas to them, entirely new revenue opportunities. So how quickly will this happen? Uh, it's, it is already happening, as I mentioned, in CAR-T. These cures are happening now. Uh, it is not a surprise to us that Gilead bought Kite Pharmaceuticals, which we owned, for about $11 billion. If Kite had been left standalone, we think it would have scaled to $100 billion within five years. Uh, Gilead bought it. Now, typically the, the risk is that these small companies get buried in a big, big company. We don't think that's the case with CAR-T. Uh, and so we've actually bought Gilead as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it's selling for 11, 12 times earnings, and it's got a gem. Kite uh, uh, Pharmaceuticals is the company that uh, ha is uh, producing, manufacturing this um, uh, uh, this uh, uh, CAR-T therapy for aggressive non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. We believe that Kite is going to uh, spread this therapy throughout the world, help it scale much faster than Kite Therapeutics could have done it alone. Now one of the things you just said there was you're buying these, you bought that company at 11, 12 times earnings. Now that seems really to stand out to me that that's the type of valuation of a real company with real profit um, being bought at quite almost a value type set of an investment rather than a, you know, far flat, you know, a Hail Mary type investment of throw, you know, a VC, throw it up against the wall and right. one of these 10 is going to work on a revenue multiple. So yeah. that really brings home to me that you're making these investments in, you know, real real companies with real profit that have this amazing upside. Yes. So uh, the, the number 11 came in twice to, to uh, this conversation. Yes. Uh, Gilead bought Kite for $11 billion. Okay. Kite has hardly any revenue, so that was okay. seemed like a huge multiple. And traditional biotech investors who are, are looking at a value stock like Gilead, Gilead is a value stock at 11, 12 times earnings, so that's the other 11. Yes. It is a real value stock because it is facing this biosimilar problem, this generic problem for a lot of the drugs in its pipeline. Not pipeline, that a lot of its drugs that are in the market today. Yep. Now it's filling its pipeline with something like Kite. And we think, I mean, it was a real sign to us that we were onto something. And our analyst, Manisha uh, Sami, spent eight years in Stanford University's uh, biology research labs. She came out, she's working with us, and she knew that Kite and Juno and Bluebird, all of them working on CAR-T te technologies, she knew that they were onto something big. Uh, the, the marketplace did not, because most analysts out there, they're seasoned and experienced, and, and that's good. But uh, these, to them, were smallish cap stocks, right? Smallish cap, uh, at the time we bought Kite, um, I believe it was maybe a $3 billion cap, maybe two. And uh, uh, the, the typical analyst out there can't look at anything below $5 billion. Uh, so um, now we think that Gilead will proliferate this therapy much faster than, than Kite could have all by itself. Kathy, can we maybe turn a little bit the conversation and you can give us some sort of insight or your views on, you know, if an investor is excited about this part of the market and wants to have it as part of their portfolio, 
how should they be thinking about it as part of their portfolio of assets and what sort of time frame should they be thinking about? I've heard you talk about five-year outlooks on a lot of the companies that you're taking positions in and we talked about 3D printing and the fact that you know the market ran up a lot and everyone got excited with valuations then it came off and you're seeing things like Tesla in the mobility space and you know we're excited and we've spoken in our podcast in the past about mobility at a service where that's coming from. Can you give us your thoughts about how an investor should think in your in your view how they should think about this as part of their portfolio? Is this something that's going to be a wild ride for them? Um, you know, should it be a big part, small part, etc.? So we the way to understand what we're doing is uh, is to think of us this way from a time horizon point of view. We are the closest you'll find to a venture capital fund in the public market space. Now. The difference between venture capital and what we're doing is venture capital is pre-IPO. There are a lot of failures in that space. Yeah. Our companies are all public. They've all been vetted uh, tremendously by investment banking firms, the SEC, uh, analysts. They've got something real. It's just They've not vaporware. They've got something real. Right. They've got, they're on to something. And uh, so our companies don't fail. But because they are disrupting the existing world order, uh, they cause a lot of controversy. Disruptive innovation causes a lot of controversy. So at times, especially in risk-off markets, this will be perceived as a volatile strategy. And it is. But what uh, we try and uh, help our investors understand is that is when you really want to buy into what we're doing. Um, uh, because uh, we're investing, believe it or not, in the future. Yes. Uh, many of the uh, traditional growth and value portfolios are benchmark sensitive. So investors uh, are, are looking at a benchmark to guide them. Uh, benchmarks are where they are because of what has already happened, what's happened historically. Uh, we're doing something very different. And because it seems so uh, out there to some people, yes. uh, it's, it seems like it's going to be very volatile, right? And Yet volatility is a two-way street. In a bull market, volatility is a good thing. Volatility to the upside is a very good thing. So uh, you will see us underperform in down markets, typically, not always. Uh, but we typ typically come out of bear markets before uh, the rest of the market. To give you an example of that, in the first quarter of 2009, um, now, this is when I was at another firm, but this equivalent strategy uh, was flat when the market was down 10%. We had started to recover. Uh, it had been rough in 08, but we were, and you know why that is? Because during periods of turmoil and massive uncertainty, our companies always gain market share. To give you two examples of that. Retail sales in the United States and, and around the world, I'm sure, were down at the worst part of 08 by somewhere in the 10 to 20% range. Okay. Amazon's worst quarter was revenue growth of 14%. Think about the massive market share gain there. Salesforce.com, pay-as-you-go software, software-as-a-service. Mm -hmm. Uh, chief technology officers in 08, 09 were told to cut their budgets 30%. Well, they had been cutting since the tech and telecom bust, right? 
they just couldn't cut anymore. They had to change the way they were doing things. So they moved from the licensing model to the pay-as-you-go model. So necessity is the mother of all invention. And Absolutely. And so Salesforce.com's worst revenue growth quarter was 20%. Think about that. Wow. Massive market share gain. So while their stocks are being hurt badly by a bear market, their market share is gaining dramatically. And as an investor, just keep we keep our eyes on the prize. Truth wins out in the end. So we don't care how we don't feel good in a bear market, but we are very confident that our investment style is going to prove out. Uh, the way to use our strategies as a, is as a complement to traditional value and growth strategies. So we know because of all of the innovation taking place and because of how fast it's moving, we know that there are value traps evolving in traditional benchmarks. Uh, value investors are very familiar with that. They know that's their biggest risk. Growth investors don't know that. And in fact... Just define what you mean by a value trap. What a value trap means is a stock looks really cheap. Yes. Uh, in, in our world, stocks are cheap for a reason. In the value world, Chop, uh, stocks are cheap and are going to revert to the mean. Yes. You know, gain back some valuation yep. relative to the market. Uh, a value trap uh, essentially is a cheap stock uh, will stay cheap and get even cheaper uh, because it's on the wrong side of innovation. It's going to be, it's going to be disrupted or disintermediated in some way, shape, or form. Uh, so we see the auto stocks at 10 times or less. There's a reason. They're going to stay there until we are able to figure out which of them is able to move into the new world, which is electric and autonomous. Completely different from the world they uh, grew up in, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, we, we don't think very many of them will make it, uh, but the ones, the one or ones that do, will have enormous uh, valuations. Excellent. Kathy, look, my, my mind's spinning in such an area for our, uh, our clients and, and listeners also to uh, get their heads around, but thank you very much. I love the research um, that your team is doing, um, and it's you know, clearly, with, you know, you're seeing Elon Musk and some, you know, some groups, and you talk about that bridging part between innovation and the financial world here in New York, um, you know, we really uh, are encouraged by what you're doing. So thank you very much. Well, and uh, we look forward to seeing you down in Sydney next time you're there. Yes, I'll be there soon. And uh, thank you, David, for this opportunity. Not a problem. Okay, bye-bye. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.